Take your Bibles and we're going to look at the book of Nahum today. It's not Nahum, the H is silent, it's Nahum. We're going to look at chapter 1 today. Chapter 1, I'll be reading with you verse 7 in just a moment, or reading to you verse 7. Nahum gives a defense of God and provides answers to questions that God's people often have. And in this day and time, the Jews wondered, hath God forsaken us? And the answer to that is no, of course. God never forsakes us. He never forsakes you. He will never leave us nor forsake us. Another question they had was, why does Assyria prosper? Why does this nation, which treated God's people harshly and controlled much of the world, prosper? And that's a good question. Remember in Psalm 73, Asaph asked that question, why does evil prosper? Why do evil people prosper? And of course, the answer is they only temporarily prosper. Every knee is going to bow and everyone will one day reap what they sow. We sometimes reap in this life, don't we? Because our sins paid for, we're chastened, we reap in this life. But guess what? The world will reap in the next life. Another question is why, or excuse me, will God keep his promises? And of course, he will. God will save Israel. He'll keep his promises, all the promises to us as well. Take your Bibles, let's stand and read verse 7. Nahum, verse 7, chapter 1. A verse you may be familiar with, the key verse actually of the entire book is verse 7. The Lord is good. Amen. Now remember, whenever you see the all caps, L-O-R-D, that's Yahweh. Not master. There's, you'll find both in your Old Testament. That's Yahweh. So this is who? Who's the I am of the Old Testament? Yeah. Who is the I am of the Old Testament? Before Abraham was I am? Specifically, who is that? Jesus. So the Lord. The Lord is good, and we know God is good. And look what it says here, a stronghold in the day of trouble. He's a fortress. He's a fortress. And he knoweth them that trust in him. Isn't that great? He knows me. He knows you. God bless us as we take a look in the book for a walk in the world. Thank you for this little prophetic book. Not minor in importance, but just a small book. So we call it, Lord, a minor prophet. But he has a lot to say. And we thank you for your inspired word. Blessed now in Jesus' name, amen. Thank you. You may be seated. Nahum means consolation. And we see Jesus in Nahum as the avenger of God's elect. We see Jesus in every book of the Bible. And here he's the avenger of God's elect. He was a person who was named after the place he was from like other prophets. Uh, Nahum was a contemporary of Habakkuk and Zephaniah. And he prophesied during the reign of he prophesied to Judah during the reign of Josiah, during the end of his revival, and at the beginning of the time of Jeremiah's prophecy. So he rubbed shoulders with some pretty great people, Jeremiah, Josiah, and the other we call minor prophets. And he's prophesying about Assyria and about the siege, the upcoming siege around Judah. And he's going to talk to Assyria and he's going to talk to Judah. But this siege we know would take place somewhere between 661 when Assyria conquered Egypt and, and between 612 B.C. when we know Nineveh would eventually fall. So somewhere in that time period, a 50-year window there. 
Remember, Israel had fallen to Assyria in 721. Israel, as you know, is comprised of the ten, ten tribes, the northern tribes. Samaria was their capital. Where the southern kingdom, Judah, is only comprised of, of uh, two tribes, Judah and Benjamin. And the capital is Jerusalem. And so now, after defeating Assyria, uh, 50, 60 years later, Assyria and Sennacherib are going to come and try and take Judah. God won't allow it to happen. But God does warn Judah and he warns Assyria. Assyria will pay for what she's done to God's people. And Judah, if she doesn't get right, will repent. We know that he was from uh, Capernaum of Galilee. And we know eventually Nineveh would fall in 612 B.C. Remember, Jonah went there 100 years before. And 120,000 people were saved. They said they only had about 175,000 back then. And 120,000 of them got saved. And so what a great revival. But now they're again in trouble. Payday is not always on Friday. Great sermon preached 100 and something years ago, payday someday. Payday's not always on Friday, but payday will come when it comes to the Lord's timetable. It'll happen. We will reap what we sow. God's people will and the world will. Judah had been paying tribute or taxes to the Assyrians and having to bow to their gods for over 100 years. They've been crying out to God. So we pick up in verse 1, we see the, the word burden. It means to lift up. The burden of Nineveh. Isaiah used this word 15 times. He talks about the burden of Moab, the burden of Babylon. And, and we know here is the message uh, to Assyria, and this is going to be heavy. A message that will weigh down any Assyrian with any sense at all. I would hate for God to warn me and say, Dan, here's what's going to happen. He spanked me enough in my life, I don't want to go back and do those things again. But when God speaks, we should listen. And these books are just as inspired as the bigger books of the Bible. We call them minor only because they're small in size. And so here we find the burden of Nineveh, the vision of Nahum. And archaeology has finally confirmed Nahum's prophecy. This city was founded over 5,000 years before Christ. It was located on the Tigris River. It was the capital of Assyria. And Nineveh is mentioned in Genesis chapter 10 and verse 11. We know this was a massive city. The walls were eight miles long and 100 feet high. And when you think about those cities and how they were constructed, it, it was awesome to think about that. They would have these massive walls. Some were many, many, many miles long and wide. And the, more, the older the city, they weren't quite as big. But there are walls. They find remnants today. They had chariot ramps. A chariot could go up and ride around the top of these walls. And they were just safe inside. Many were built on rivers. And, and they could pour their sewage into one end and drink in the other end and, and bathe in the middle. And, and it was just amazing how they constructed these cities. And one great siege warfare was uh, when a river was dammed up and the enemy came in as they rerouted the entire river. And the people inside would be throwing hot oil and boulders and shooting arrows on the people who were trying to come into the city. They'd have enough grain to stay for a couple of years. We find siege warfare in the Bible where people ended up eating their own children. And so here now, Sennacherib and the Assyrians are going to surround Jerusalem. Jerusalem has Hezekiah's tunnel. They have water. They have food. But God's going to take care of them, but it gets pretty difficult. 
We're not going to talk about the difficulty in that day, but they have found the world's largest aqueduct, uh, ancient aqueduct, there in Assyria, but did not discover the remains of Assyria, Nineveh, excuse me, the capital of Syria, until the 1800s. Why? It was so devastated by God. They could not find anything. In fact, one famous Athenian uh, general had passed through there and didn't notice anything at all and because it was so destroyed, devastated. We'll talk about that a little bit later. So we pick up in verse 2. We see the power of God here. God is jealous and the Lord revengeth. The Lord revengeth and is furious. The Lord will take vengeance. Now here we know God is the husband of Judah and of Israel. You remember, we're told he actually divorced his own people. The actual word divorce is used in your Bible. And, and he was frustrated with them. He was a jealous God. And, and, and jealousy in, with God was not sinful because God can't sin. We talk about jealousy and wrath and vengeance here mentioned. Those are sins of man, but not sins of God. God can be angry and not sin. We're, we, we can try to be angry and not sin. It's possible. And someone once said, if, you, if a Christian doesn't know how to be angry, they don't know how to be good either. And so anger is not bad in and of itself if you're angry about the right thing. But God never sinned. And so here he's angry, he's jealous. Why would he be jealous? Well, it's interesting. God created us in his image. Did you know that? We belong to God. He made us. And then all we like sheep went astray. We chose to sin and go our own way. And that angered God. But he sent Jesus Christ to die on the cross. And what did he do? He bought us back. He made us. We went astray. Then he bought us back. He owns us. And he has a right to be angry. He's a jealous God. We belong to him. You are not your own. You're bought with a price. The blood of Jesus Christ. And so he owns us and he's angry when we don't live right. He's furious. He revengeth, the Bible says. Josiah's grandfather Manasseh was evil. He was carried away captive. And so think of Josiah, what a man he, of God he had to be to have a father and a grandfather like he had. But the Assyrians uh, would, would tear apart the northern kingdom, destroy it, and eventually would get defeated by Babylon, but then Babylon would come and do to Judah what Assyria did to the northern kingdom. God keeps his word. and Sometimes it means payday. He's sovereign. We're sinful, but he's sovereign. And uh, we know in verse 3 it says, the Lord is slow to anger. That's what we need to remember. I don't want God mad at me, but I love the fact that he's slow, slow to anger. You know, I hear people all the time, and I've said this before, not the same way, but how many times have we heard people say, well, I wish God would just judge them. I've heard people say, oh, the gays are in San Francisco. I wish God would just have an earthquake and swallow all those fags up. And I thought to myself, that's not what we should think. Judgment will come. Sin will be judged. The reason... We shouldn't think that way is we're supposed to have compassion for lost souls. All right. Aren't we? And it's always fascinating how we want God to God to judge these people. But boy, God, be merciful with me. You know, Lord, please. I know I had a bad thought about that woman. Lord, I know I said something ugly about that person. Lord, I know I gossiped. Lord, I was rude to my neighbor. 
or my coworker. Oh, be merciful, God. But God judge those people quickly. Do it now, Lord. Take care of America now. Just bring them all down in judgment. And yet, as much as I'm unhappy with things in our country right now, I, I'm not going to get very political, just a tiny bit. You know what my Bible tells me to do? Pray for them in authority over me. Pray for them. Do you pray for those people as much as you criticize them? Oh, preacher, don't say that. But I, aren't I supposed to preach to you? you know, I know it's easy when the preacher preaches about all those people out there, the gays and the drunkards. But you know what a pastor's job is? It's to feed our people and to point out the struggles we have. I'm just as bad as the next guy. I don't like what's going on, but I have to pray. And the Bible says don't even speak evil of dignitaries. We're supposed to be on our knees for our country. And, and so it's difficult for me, a guy who does not like what's going on. I love our military. I spent 19 years ministering the military, 10 years in the canal zone of Panama, and then Okinawa. I love our military. And when 13 military members die, I'm, I'm very unhappy broken for their families because they gave their lives so I could have the freedom to say what I'm saying today. But we must pray for our leaders, including our commander-in-chief. All right? God will judge. There's a judgment of nations coming. Genesis, or, excuse me, not Genesis, uh, Matthew 24 and 25. There's a judgment of nations coming. We know that. God's going to judge Assyria. But here he's slow to anger. Look at Exodus chapter 24. Quickly, Exodus chapter 24. And we're going to show you how this Hebrew word is translated in Exodus chapter 34, not 24. Exodus 34 and verse 6. This word translated here, slow to anger, in chapter 34 verse 6 is translated long-suffering. And the Lord passed by before him and proclaimed the Lord, the Lord God, merciful and gracious, long-suffering. Did you know that? Aren't you thankful for that? You see, we can't have it both ways. We can't say, God, be long-suffering with me, slow to anger with me, but deal with Orville or Mike or that guy or that guy. It doesn't work that way. God is consistent. He knows each, of, each, each one of us. He knows our heart. He knows what I need. He knows when I need a weapon. <laughs> he knows when I listen to his spirit and get in the word and deal with the problem I'm struggling with that day. Do you know I struggle every day? So do you. We all have our battles with sin. I'm thankful to get older. I struggle less, but I mean, I still struggle every day. You, you know, I've told you about, you know, that, that, that preacher that, I, I blew the joke. Can't tell you that one now. We'll skip that joke because I already ruined it. I already gave you the punchline about that guy that didn't want to go to church. His mom hollered down and says, get up and go to church. And he kept saying, no, you know the joke. And she said, well, why don't you want to go to church? She says, because I'm the pastor. Yeah. I mean, there's times you get up in the morning. Do I always feel like preaching? No. Sometimes I feel like kicking the dog. Or spitting or something. Uh, but, you know... We struggle because we have a sinful old nature. You don't have to carry this body of death with me till the day God delivers me from it. You know, when we go to funerals and we lie and we say, oh, don't they look good? They're just full of formaldehyde. 
They don't look good. For a dead person, I guess they look all right. We put makeup on them and clothes. But you know what that is in that casket? That old sinful body. <laughs> that person's spirit is gone, man. It's with the Lord. And we'll have a new body one day. It won't be sinful. It won't tempt us. It won't get mad. It won't eat too much. Tonight we have a fellowship. I better cool it. I'm preaching on gluttony and self-control. But, you know, we won't do that one day. But we are sinful people. And I'm so thankful he is slow to anger. He's long-suffering. Look at verse 3. Back here in Nahum, Nahum 1.3, the Bible says, And will not all acquit the wicked, or not will, he will not completely acquit the wicked. The word acquit is translated in Proverbs, uh, innocent. In other words, they're not innocent. They're not acquitted. I, I like to use the expression, justice if I never sin, describing justification, but technically that's not really accurate because I have sinned. And it cost Jesus Christ his life in my place. And because of that, God sees the blood. God knows I've sinned. But he sees the blood because of what Jesus Christ did. And so I thank God one day I won't have to answer for my sin. I'll stand before him and answer for my works and lose rewards at the Bema seat. But I won't ever answer for my sin. Because God sent Jesus Christ to pay for my sin. Look at Romans chapter 5 and verse 12. Romans chapter 5 and verse 12. Wherefore, as by one man sin entered into the world, and death by sin, and so death passed upon all men for all of sin. <laughs> you know, because of our sin, we're going to die. I heard about the lady that dated a guy with a wooden leg, and she broke it off. <laughs> and he just had to lumber along. We are sinners. Amen. And we're rotten, aren't we? The only thing good in me is the grace of God. Did you know that? Hey, if the Apostle Paul said there's nothing good in my flesh, then I can tell you there's nothing good in my flesh. And there's nothing good in yours. You know, we fix ourselves up and we look in the mirror. We get all ready to go to work or go out in the world. What about fixing the inside up? Here's the mirror, the glass of the word, James says. The mirror... This is what we need to get in before we go out into the world. So we're good on the inside. It's more important that you spend time with God than with makeup. Or with men, we do other things, shave and all this stuff. But our time with God is vitally important. So we're ready to face the world. Because we are, after all, rotten people. Uh, but God commended his love toward us. In that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. I love the song. I, I, it's not a favorite song, but the, the, the lyrics. I was sinking deep in sin. Far from the peaceful shore. But the master rescued me sinking. I, I was sinking to no rise, rise no more. But the master rescued me. I was a sinner. Sinking deep. And I can't sing, but I can tell you, he rescued me. And I'm not going to have to worry about sinking anymore. Because God Save me. And folks, without God, we're lost. We're going to hell. I love verse 3. Look at it says in verse 3. 
and you need to mark your Bibles, but it says in verse 3, the middle of the verse, the Lord hath his way in the wind, in the whirlwind, and in the storm, and the clouds are the dust of his feet. The Lord has his way in the storm. I've been through 40 hurricanes in Okinawa. God was with me during every one of those storms. God's with the people in New Orleans, or as they say, New Orleans. He's with them. He's with them. His children will be taken care of. If he calls them home, he calls them home. And I don't worry about Christians. I worry. I pray for Christians, but I worry. Are people going to die and go to hell in these storms that have never heard the gospel? And it's our job. It's our job to reach them with the gospel of Jesus Christ. Go ye into all the world and preach the gospel. What's going on in your life? You have a storm right now? He's with you during the storm. He's in control of the storm. Storms sometimes come to our lives. We, we don't know they're going to come. All of a sudden, boom, they're there. I was laughing a few weeks ago. I got on the weather app and I was going to cut my grass and it said 0% chance of rain. I mean 0%. Just a couple weeks ago. And about three o'clock, it was raining so hard I couldn't see out my window. I mean, it was just pouring. I thought, what's wrong with these weathermen? How do they miss that one? Sometimes I feel sorry for them. I wouldn't want their job. But sometimes storms come in our life like that. We don't expect them. We're expecting a good day and all of a sudden, bam, the rugs pull out from under us and we don't know what to do. God, help me. I don't know what to do. This is a storm I can't handle, God. Other times we see them coming. We know they're on their way. But here it says God's in that, in that. Verse 4, he rebuketh the sea. You think of the Red Sea. He maketh it dry. He did that with the Jordan as well. Notice he mentions here Mount Carmel, the place of Elijah's victory over Baal. He mentioned Basham, known for her pastures, and Mount Carmel, known for her vineyards, and Lebanon, known for her trees. God's in control of everything, even the trees. Do you know the stones will one day cry out to God? The trees, the Bible says, will clap their hands. All the universe is waiting for when he comes back. He's sovereign over the wind and the rain. Who can control the wind and the storms and the rain but him? He's in control. Verse 4, he rebuketh the sea and make it dry. Verse 5, the mountains quake at him. That word's translated tremble. It doesn't just mean earthquakes. Just everything in the universe fears God. It's hard to understand that, but Romans 8 said, all creation groans, waiting for deliverance from the curse. Our sin brought a curse upon the world. Adam's sin, the original sin, brought a curse on the world. Everything has to suffer. But God's sovereign. He's sovereign over nature. He's sovereign over, nat uh, over nations. Verse 7, the key verse we talked about a moment ago, and we want to mention this verse again, the Lord is good. He's good. I love that. God is good. God is good? I love Romans 2.4. I talked earlier about how we want judgment. And I'm ultimately we all will want judgment and we will see judgment. We hate sin. So we want judgment. But you know, Romans 2, 4 says, the goodness of God leads to repentance. 
A lot of times we think, oh, this catastrophe happened and everybody's going to be saved in our country. There's going to be mass revival. And we see a catastrophe and we don't see mass revival. While difficulty can bring people to Christ, God's goodness also brings people to Christ. When I got saved, I thought about how good God was. I knew I was a sinner and I felt rotten in the presence of God. But I thought about how he placed me in a Christian family, placed me in the right church, and took care of me. And when you think about it, all of us realize he's good and we're rotten. <laughs> and that's when repentance takes place because we recognize what we are. God is good. He's a stronghold. He's better than a fortress. He's all-knowing. Remember, he's all-powerful in verse 4. Here he's all-knowing. He knows who trusts in him. You trust in him or do you depend on the world and the banks and the, and the doctors and all that? That's the thing about money we talked about last week. You can have a lot of it and have the best doctors and still go, go, die and, and, and die tomorrow. You know, God's sovereign. He's all-powerful. He's all-knowing. He's, he's all-knowing all, all, all here. It says he's, he's all-present. It tells us in verse 5 that he's in the storm. So all these great words describing God. And then verse 8 he says... But with an overrunning flood, he will make an utter end of the place thereof. They couldn't even find the remains of Nineveh when God got done with it. it took years until 150 years ago. What do you imagine against the Lord? He will make an utter affliction, an end. Affliction shall not rise a second time. He says to Judah, they're going to siege you right now. But it won't happen again. I'm going to deal with them. But Judah needed revival as well. And so God was speaking here to Judah and through the prophet Nahum to, to Assyria, Nineveh specifically. He's warning them, get right. God will not stand for it again. He'll, he'll not allow his people to be chastened again and again. He has a plan for Judah. Look at Psalm chapter 2. I love this psalm. You think of all that happened in history. The Assyrians here and then the Babylonians defeated them and then the Medes and the Persians defeated the Babylonians and then the Greeks came in and defeated the Medes and the Persians and the Romans came in and de defeated the, yeah, the Greeks. It just goes on and on like that because God judges nations and God judges leaders. I love Psalm 2 verse 4. Why do the heathen rage and the people imagine a vain thing? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed. Why? Why? I, I, I don't understand why. I mean, I can, I can give you the theological answer there without God. And this is the devil's world. He's a prince and power of the air. But, but still, it doesn't make sense. Why are they so stupid? Why don't they realize God is sovereign and he created this place? Second Peter tells us that they willingly are ignorant of the flood in creation. They go out of their way. I mean, I, I've said this so many times, how they go out of their way to act as though God doesn't exist. They always talk about Mother Nature. Mother Nature. Ten million ago, years ago, Mother made Nature made this critter or whatever. Father God, not Mother Nature. <laughs> That's what Genesis says. God made the things of this world. And he's not going to allow affliction to come again. In verse 12, he gives a promise to Judah. He promises them 
back in our text, verse 12, he says, Thus saith the Lord, though they be quiet, and likewise many, yet shall they be cut down when he shall pass through. Though I have afflicted thee, I will afflict thee no more. I'm going to deal with the enemy. I'm not going to afflict you anymore. Why? Because Judah would finally get right. And then what would happen? Like always, they'd go back into sin. Isn't it always amazing when you study, just study the judges sometimes. Israel's doing good. God gives a great victory. And then they go back into worshiping idols. And then they're slaves again for 40 years. Another group of people, the Midianites or whoever, the Philistines control them again. And then they repent and God sends them a deliverer and they get right again and things are good. And then they go right back into sin. Over and over, over, over. It's a vicious cycle. And you know what? It's a cycle in your life too. When you need God, oh, God, help me out here, God. And then the next week you're doing the same thing you've done all your life. Going back and sinning again. We're just like the children of Israel. We like to talk about them. We do the same things. But nothing can stand up to God. Verse 13, for I will break his yoke from off the I'm going to take. I'm going to take Sennacherib's yoke. He, he's not going to be able to control Judah. I'm going to deliver Judah. And you know what that's a type of? It's a type of our chains of sin. Just like Judah was compassed about and circled, the Bible said we're compassed about, we're wrapped around with chains in our sinful state. But when Jesus saves us, we're free. We don't have to sin anymore. We choose to. I've done good for two weeks. I told you three weeks ago, I, I got a, a whole bag of Oreo cookies. I ate them that week, but not really spread out over seven days. It was two. And this week I was driving down Ringgold Road and I heard those Oreo cookies. Dan, Dan, you need some, something sweet. Don't you have a craving? I sure did. But I could say no, and I thought, man, it's been a good week. But tonight, the desserts are going to be calling my name. Hey, every day it's a battle with whatever in our life. Whether it's, you know, I use myself in my eating because, I mean, I have 20 pounds to deal with. But just think of all the lust of the flesh and all the temptation and all the weaknesses we face. Self-control. Oh, I hate to hear those words, but they're in the Bible. It's not just eating, it's getting mad. When you don't have self-control, you get mad. And you eat too much and you lust too much and you say things, you control that tongue. Tongue's out of control. And Bible said it'd be better to just cut your tongue out. We're not going to do that. That's a hyperbole to get the point across. If your eye offends you, rip it out. God doesn't want us plucking our eyes out, but he wants to make a point that your eye causes so much damage to your heart and your tongue so much damage to other people's heart. And we don't control it because of sin. Realize you have a problem with self-control and God can help you once you admit, hey, I've got a problem. God can help you and give you victory. It's your slaves to sin without Christ. Notice the predicament here of, of the king in verse 14, and we'll close with this, but verse 15 in the Hebrews, actually part of the next chapter, but verse 14. 
Notice what it says with Sennacherib. It says here, And the Lord hath given a commandment concerning thee, that no more of thy name shall be sown out of the house of thy gods. Will I cut off the graven images and the molten image? I will make thy grave, for thou art vile. He says three things. First of all, your descendants will cease. Just a matter of time where your kids and offspring will no longer produce and the line's going to be cut off. You know what? His own kids, according to 2 Kings, killed Sennacherib. His own children killed him. That's common in the Bible. And, and so we find th that this was fulfilled in the life of the prophet during his lifetime. Second of all, his deities would be cut off. You ever think about this? And I, I think I, I, I repeat things. I don't repeat passages, but I repeat thoughts. And I've said this before, I think on a Wednesday night. You ever notice that all these false gods are gone? Does anyone worship these Assyrian gods anymore? You ever have anyone worshiping Moloch? Nope. Baal? Nope. Why? They're gone. They were just impersonators, just the devil, you know, uh, making people think these deities were real. He said that the gods, they'll be cut off. They don't exist anymore because they were not real anyway. They were false gods, satanic impressions of God. And then he says, you're going to die. And he died. His own kids killed him. What do we learn from this? That God judges nations and God judges his people and he judges those that harm his people. You say, I got a coworker that's treated me bad. Just turn him over to God. Vengeance is God's. Don't you worry about it. Don't you retaliate. <laughs> we were picking blueberries when we were kids. And this is not a story about me. And this guy had got the best of my brother in a fight. So we're riding home all of us on our bikes and we saw him ahead and Randy rode up ahead of him and it was a big, steep, steep drop off. I mean, really steep. And Randy got up next to him and kicked his bike and that guy went down in that ditch over and over and over. <laughs> we just went home. Randy got vengeance. But he didn't feel any better about it. He felt bad about it, you know. Randy was a young Christian. He felt bad about it. Felt good for the moment. You know, that's how things are. Oh, it feels so good to sin. Huh? Doesn't it feel good when you say that ugly, mean thing to your spouse or to whoever you work with you don't like and you snap at him? Oh, I, I'm waiting for this punchline opportunity and I'm just going to nail him. Oh, it feels good. But then later as a Christian, uh, uh, I hurt their feelings. I can tell they're, they're bothered by it. And other people saw me and this is not a good thing to do. So let me tell you this. When you get vengeance, then guess who God deals with? You. He said, vengeance is my territory. Stay out of it. I'll deal with them. You realize that all the sinful nations and all the sinful people will one day bow before God. Don't you take vengeance. Turn them over to the Lord. You be like Jesus and be kind to people. Eat lunch with someone you consider a vile drunkard and tell them about Jesus. Buy his lunch and tell them about Jesus. That's how we're supposed to operate. Vengeance is God's territory. Mine is supposed to be compassion. God is sovereign over all. He's long-suffering. He's good. He's our fortress. He knows those who trust with him. Trust him. But he's also jealous, vengeful, and, and, and full of wrath when he's, when he's not happy. Oh, God, I don't want you upset with me. 
I've got enough in my backyard to take care of. I don't need to worry about the neighbor's yard. In other words, I got enough sin in my life, enough challenges to live the Christian life that I cannot judge others. Help me to be like Jesus, to reach them with the gospel. And today, if you're here and you're not a believer, I would come forward and we'll have someone stand up here with a Bible and they'll take the Bible and show you how to be saved. Jesus died on the cross for you. He took your hell. He paid your debt of sin. He died in your place because the wages of sin for you was death. And that's not just physical. It also includes eternal separation from God. But God commended his love toward us. That while we are at sinners, Jesus died for us. He died for you. And today could be your day of salvation. Let's pray. God bless us. Thank you for your word, Lord. Lord, this little prophet said a mouthful today. A mouthful that doesn't just apply to Israel and Judah and to Assyria, but it applies to the Taliban, to America, to Christians, and to sinners. God, help us to apply it to our lives and let you deal with the sin of the world. We pray if there's anybody here who has never been saved, they'll come forward during the invitation and trust Jesus Christ. Bless now, in Jesus' name we pray, amen. Let's stand and sing.